This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon and welcome to the Daily Digest on The Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su An and Ti Xiao Eek. So for our story today, we're taking a look at the COVID-19 SOPs. And since the first MCO last year, we've all adapted to living with the, these SOPs in our daily routines at work, at home and things like that. But these SOPs often also cause confusion among the people that it aims to regulate, especially when they are often changed and seemingly without a clear rationale behind those changes. So we want to take a look at how prescriptive can our SOPs be, especially when we're trying to keep up with the signs, um, keep up with what we know about the pandemic, and should we simply ban any activities that increase the risk of COVID-19 transmission? Yes, so we want to find out from you, you know, how... Uh, have you sort of what what have you been using to guide um, your own uh, safety behaviors and protocols during this pandemic? How have you kept yourself safe um, during uh, this past year or so? Uh, we have a poll with that question running on Twitter, and uh, in our poll we have a few options. Uh, you've been using your common sense, uh, you've been following SOPs strictly, or you've been trying but struggling to follow the SOP. So you can take that poll at BFM Radio or um, tweet us any other thoughts that you have regarding um, how um, easy or difficult or challenging has it been for you to follow the SOPs or for you to follow restrictions, you can also WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. So I guess about this, uh, the, the pandemic and all these guidelines that we follow, a lot of it is guided by this idea of should we or should we not do something? You know, is it safe? to do a particular activity or not to behave in a particular way. You know, what are the activities or behaviour that um, we should or shouldn't practice, be it at home, at work, or when we're out and about. And I guess a simple example of this would be, you know, for uh, what we've heard so often, we should not leave our home unless necessary, Mm. which really became the rule to follow since the pandemic was first declared last year. But, you know, from that one point, there are a whole range of behaviours and activities that we've been told, um, you know, whether we should or should not do while some are quite clear, like for example, saying that we should be washing our hands more frequently or we should be wearing a mask in uh, crowded places or physical distancing and things like that. There are other um, actions that sort of straddle that line, right? And I think um, some of the ones that I've seen brought up are, for example, should you be exercising with other people? You know, how do you how do you determine how many of you mm. should you be exercising with them in close proximity, mm. or should you be having um, meetups indoors or outdoors and things like that? Which I guess it's not. There's not necessarily a clear answer to. Mm, and I get what you mean by how prescriptive can they be? Do you put an arbitrary number of mm. two or five to That's it, right? right? And and this links to the idea of COVID uh, absolutism. So this um, idea was highlighted in a short piece by David Leonhardt in the New York Times, where he wrote, and I quote: "In a public health emergency, absolutism is a very tempting response. People should cease all behavior that creates additional risk. And what this means is." Um, you discourage or even prohibit any behaviour that is perceived to increase the risk of COVID-19 transmission, no matter how small the possibility may be. Yeah, and just to give you an example, you know, in that article, they sort of mentioned people screaming at joggers or cyclists who aren't wearing masks oh, while gosh. they exercise outdoors, <laughs> or, you know, simply or a university campus in the US where they just straight up said, we are banning outdoor exercises on campus. I see, right, yep. Yeah, and, uh, you know, and I guess... <coughs> Sorry. 
Sorry. Um, and this also, the article also references uh, other health issues that have been, or I guess are still being addressed from an absolutist perspective. Um, things like campaigns for teen abstinence to reduce sexually transmitted infections and teen pregnancies, or the elimination of carbs in a diet to fight obesity. So it's sort of like almost an all on, or like that one Correct. way or all or nothing sort of um, you approach. Want, you want a black and white and you want a yes or no kind of answer to That's it. Right. You know? And a related trend to that would also be what has been termed hygiene theatre. And that's been highlighted by a writer with The Atlantic, Derek Thompson. So in his articles, Thompson describes an over-reliance on the need to deep clean and disinfect surfaces to prevent the transmission of the coronavirus. But he questions how much it actually helps in preventing the spread of the disease. And um, actually, it's not just Thompson that's been questioning it. Uh, we've been reading um, some uh, uh, journal uh, articles, mm. haven't we, including in The Nature um, that has um, called into question how effective is it to uh, carry out this kind of uh, deep cleaning, disinfecting when um, most largely the evidence is pointing towards the transmission through droplets yes, in the air. rather yeah. than through surfaces. Yeah, so, so the idea of hygiene theatre is, you know, where you are keeping up appearances that you are doing something to prevent transmission of the virus and what is more obvious and theatrical <laughs> yes. than all of this kind of, um, you know, the, the spraying of all the disinfectant materials, right? And, and I guess to add to that, I also saw a recent tweet by Stefan Barrel, who is an epidemiologist at the uh, John Hopkins School of Public Health and he was talking about this idea of a visible intervention bias and what he says this is, is and I quote, uh, it drives us to do things like implement outdoor mask mandates rather than tackling the living and working conditions driving mm. so many infections. So again, that sort of theatrical way of doing things like keeping up appearances like, you know, look, I am doing something mm -hmm. rather than um, perhaps, I guess, um, uh, creating policies that address the root of the issue yes, in the first targeting case. them right yeah. yeah and he and you know and in quoting this I also want to say that he's not saying that masking isn't important I think he's just bringing that as an example of a visible policy mm -hmm. and he does emphasize that it is still important to prevent the transmission of virus uh, the virus but you know the, it, we can't just look at things that we can see and think that once that is addressed everything else will be as well mm. And um, and just to add on another thing to that, to just go back to the New York uh, Times article that you quoted initially, shall we? They also spoke to Julia Marcus, who's an infectious disease epidemiologist, and she says, and I quote, "Rules are more about uh, rules that are more about showing that you're doing something versus doing something that's actually effective are counterproductive." Yeah. So if we look at our myriad of SOPs that have been introduced and changed since the first MCO last year, there hasn't been any shortage of criticisms from the people as well as politicians, to be honest, are from both sides um, hmm. of the divide. Uh, most recently, I guess, all of you are aware of the backlash over the SOPs for Chinese New Year celebrations, you know, uh, when it was uh, stipulated that reunion dinners would not be allowed, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, following the backlash, the SOPs were then amended. Uh, uh, and then another recent one was the confusion over access to public parks, as they were announced to be closed during the second MCO. But some parks were later announced to be um, allowed to open. So um, all of this confusion possibly also stems from the facts that from the fact that SOPs within an MCO, um, CMCO, which is the conditional MCO, and then there's the recovery MCO, they do change um, as they are announced mm. and they do seem to change in phases even within a particular iteration of uh, a CMCO, for instance, right. right? We wait to hear the announcements and updates from Senior Minister um, uh, 
Dato Sri Ismail Sabri. So what what is different from Malaysia is we don't have a tier system like the UK or Singapore, for example, uh, where you can see that uh, when um, cases are or positivity rate is a certain level, they enter this tier and then it's standard uh, restrictions within that tier. So, you know, it's... it's um, it's a constant balancing act that we seem to be doing here in Malaysia, bearing in mind that we can't, of course, ignore the need for the economy to remain open. So um, for for us as individuals and uh, wanting to take care of ourselves and our loved ones, you know, how do we make that decision about what is best and safe um, for us, right? Yeah, I guess it begs the question of how prescriptive our SOPs should be and, you know, how closely you as an individual want to follow the, the changes in the SOP, right? For example, um, like we mentioned earlier, you know, SOPs um, dictating like how many people can be in a car or how many or mm. things like you hear, how many people can sit at a restaurant or how many people can exercise together. Mm-hmm. It's understandable that we need, uh, it, it, we can't ignore the fact that our SOPs need to stay updated. They need to follow whatever new findings, whatever new um, aspects we've learned about the disease and the virus so that we're not sticking to outdated mm-hmm. guidelines. But at the same time, we also need to ensure that the people understands the rationale behind the SOPs rather than simply um, be given the SOPs, I guess. There's a need to build trust in the authorities among the people when you are talking about SOPs like that. And I don't know, I, I personally find it's quite confusing to navigate the changes in the SOP, particularly because they are sort of on a press conference to press conference mm. basis. It's sort of depending on what the um, National Security Council and what the senior minister announces the changes. So compared to, I guess, because we read the news so often compared to other countries like you mentioned Singapore and the UK, they have a very specific and clear system because compared to that, ours is a bit more random. Yeah, and actually on a practical basis, um, we are actually... Uh, sometimes lost as to mm. how many people, for instance, are allowed to be in a car that if we take that SOP as an example, where you actually kind of need to trawl through a recent media article to find out was this changed in a recent press uh, conference, you know, or, or look up the, the guidelines on MKN. Uh, and, you know, very often you don't know where to look as well. And the question of whether the SOPs and the restrictions and protocols are based on science, uh, it really calls it into question because if uh, on one day you say that reunion dinners are not allowed and on another they are, um, did the science change overnight? Mm. Did our cases drastically reduce overnight? Um, what is the rationale, um, you know, driving the change in the decision? So when people don't understand that, um, we're left with really only blindly following SOPs um, or just disregarding them altogether, perhaps because we simply don't trust the, the, the rationale behind it. That's right. And, you know, because we have known so much more about how the disease spread, it seems, it, it does seem a bit overkill to, I mean, it's perfectly fine if you want to take all precautions necessary and stay at home all the time. But if you want to go out, you may not know exactly how safe it is either and because you keep hearing changes in the SOP you yourself might sometimes feel unsure about what is the right move because Mm. like you said Shawi if one day this is allowed and the next day it isn't then how do I make that decision how do I uh, rationalize what is safe and what isn't right It it, it might lead to 
extra caution being taken than necessary. And I guess that, that you could, it could also feel very tiring to be always at the edge of your seat all the time. Yes, and it does lead to what people call pandemic fatigue. Mm. And, and it, you may then, uh, it may backfire on us eventually if um, people are so caught up in following um, the minutia of the rules that they don't, understand the principles of it and aren't able to apply it. Because, I mean, what concerned me over the Chinese New Year period, which is still ongoing, but really over the the first the reunion, mm-hmm. first and second day celebrations were, because the SOPs allowed for it, people were gathering in rather large groups um, in houses or, or and now that you see the dining res- uh, restrictions mm-hmm. have been relaxed, you do see large groups in restaurants. Um, and, you know, people are People feel that they are able to do that because the SOPs allow them to. But from a public health perspective, should you be doing that uh, when you, if you look at it from the point of um, what is the risk of exposure to transmission? That's right. And we want to get to that in a bit with our two guests for the day, Dr. Farhan Rusli and Dr. Helmi Zakaria, from, both from the Slangor Task Force for COVID-19. And we'll, um, they will be joining us after this short break. But in the meantime, you can tweet us your thoughts at BFM Radio. You can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. Now stay with us as we take a break for a few messages. Uh, this is the Daily Digest on The Bigger Picture. BFM 89.9. Welcome back to the Daily Digest on The Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su and NT Xiao Ik in the studio today. So before the break, we were discussing this concept of COVID-19 absolutism. And that means, you know, looking at COVID-19 guidelines or SOPs in a very strict sense. So for example, it would mean even if there's a small risk of transmitting the virus while jogging outdoors, you would completely ban the activity. So sort of taking a very somewhat stressful perspective to the situation, I would say. And, you know, and that that's what we want to get at today, right? How prescriptive can our SOPs be? And sort of just looking back as well, how our SOPs have been. Mm. So we want to ask these very questions uh, to our experts and we have them joining us on the line now. Assistant Professor Dr. Farhan Rusli, a public health physician and director of the Selangor Task Force for COVID-19, as well as another member of the task force, Dr. Helmi Zakaria. Welcome to the show, Jen. So, um, Dr. Farhan, if we can start with you, from a public health perspective, what is the purpose of our COVID-19 SOPs and guidelines in managing the spread of the disease? Uh, one of the most important things why SOPs are actually in place is part of a public health initiative, which is the risk communication. So one of the main important drivers of a public health pandemic management is effective risk communication. And part of this is detailing out what are the standard operating procedures or what are the things that the public need to know in order to minimize or reduce their risk in contracting the COVID-19. Also, SOPs are also put in place so that in case you are actually positive, uh, what are you supposed to do when you are positive? However, I think this is also a good avenue to say that SOPs are actually not only meant for public, but it's also meant for the healthcare workers and how the government actually handles uh, a positive case or an outbreak. So that you have a flow or you have an understanding how these things are actually going to be tackled. So let's say you have a positive case of COVID. What is the government's response? So they have to follow a standardized SOP. And the public who actually has been notified as having 
COVID-19. What is the standard SOP that they need to know? So this thing is actually something that must be available and given uh, in the public domain so that everybody understand what is the role of government, what is the role of society, what is the role of individual when they actually have this. And if you have a failure in SOPs or if you have a breakage or leakage in SOPs and it's not done to the T, that is where you have problems uh, cropping up or you have failures in the system of, uh, of management of the pandemic. And Dr. Helmi, you know what we know about the COVID-19 uh, disease and the virus changes all the time as we learn more about the pandemic. And so guidelines on uh, guidelines and SOP have to change accordingly. And here in Malaysia, I mean, we've shared, uh, we've experienced our fair share of SOP changes. So why is it important for the authorities to be clear and transparent on the rationale behind those changes? Um, so you see, when we talk about SOPs, right, and standard operating procedure, we are, and when we apply it to the public, we are talking about public health here. And we are not talking like SOP in a line of manufacturing or, you know, in the line of product delivery. So in the context of absolutism, though, the way we announce our SOP have always like, it's like a swing from pendulum from one end to the other, right? And that is the problem with absolutism, right? And absolutism means like uh, we give you we give you one point and then you shall not ask this point and you shall not counter it. But historically, uh, absolutism, when it comes to public health, have always, almost always failed, right? So for example, uh, drug absolutism in drug and HIV. And we just say to people, don't take drugs. And then you can see that actually never worked. Eventually, the public health people have to go to harm reduction, right? Where you do like needle exchange and whatnot. And this is what actually works. To go back to your question then, why you need to be, why we need to be careful? Because science change. Everything that is absolute is not science and science is not absolute, right? Uh, and uh, when we communicate science exactly like uh, what Professor Farhan said just now, uh, that science have always uh, been communicated in terms of relativism. We don't say like old people die. We say in COVID-19, the elderly die, the likelihood of elderly die to face mortality is higher than, you know, the younger adult, right? And and and, and therefore, uh, then there's this term or 95% confidence interval and all of this, it all means that there are margin of error where it means that things change, knowledge evolve. And this is why uh, I think like you said, the government have to be transparent because uh, in being transparent and in being humble about saying there are some things that we don't know before and now it has changed, this actually built people confidence. That's the reason why it's important to be transparent. So then say if we do go the route of COVID-19 absolutism to restrict certain activities, even if there is only minimal risk of transmission, how would that affect people's behaviour? Okay, it's like this. Yeah, the last time I checked, we are still in a democracy, and you can see the failures of communism and authoritarians, and by giving people an absolute yes or no. So this goes against all public health concepts because you are trying to aim for behavioral change, and part of behavioral change is actually empowerment, which means that you make the people have a self-realization and understanding why they need to do this. Why is it important for them to follow certain things? Why is it important for them to, you know, not be in large crowds, not to go into public places without wearing masks? That is the core essence of public health. 
there, there is no point in you telling people or the, uh, telling the public, you cannot do this, you can do this, you cannot do this, you cannot do this, you can do that. And even when you do that, when you choose that, that, that authoritarian pathway and you do it so in so much weakness, because we can take the example of the Chinese New Year. Today, they say that no Chinese New Year, you're in India. Tomorrow, they say, you know what? I'm going to let 15 of you come in. And then they go on and say, today, oh, two people can drive in the car. But once you touch 12 midnight tonight, your whole family can go in. And today, you cannot go more than 10 kilometers. But at 12 midnight tonight, you can leave 10 kilometers away. So do you see how um, misguided the people who develop these policies are? And what this creates is that when you have misguidance in the in the governance, when you have misguidance in policy making, when this trickles down to the normal people and the rakyat, how do you expect these people to comprehend, or these people to accept that what you're saying is based on facts and science? The, basically, you are just telling them that, you know what, if I make enough noise, then the government is going to change their stance and policy. And this makes people question, how in the world do they even develop this kind of policy in the first place? Right? How come... When people make noise about reunion dinner, oh, everybody can come. You know, you have to have a stance, right? I mean, you face it head on, right? You have to grab its horn and you have to be in control. And as, as the policy makers, as the main drivers in this, you cannot be seem to look weak. You cannot, you cannot seem to be too flimsy. Like you need to have a backbone in your driving of policies and SOPs. Only then will people start to fall in line and only then will you be able to empower these communities and society to follow what you want them to do. So to what extent do you think we can depend on people to rationalise what is safe and what isn't? I mean, how do we empower people to make those decisions? Okay, number one, when you have this, you need to have a clear communication tool, right? So a clear, clear-cut path. Let's say when we talk about red zones, uh, this area is red. You need to be able to detail out what is red and what can you do in red. This is orange. What can you do in orange? This thing cannot be a blanket rule, right? You cannot, you cannot tell people, okay, but because you're here, even though you are in PKP, you are allowed to do this, 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 and this. However, if you're in orange, because of this, we are unable to control that, you can do this, 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 and this. So you, you are asking me whether if this is in place, uh, can the people actually follow it? I'm telling you that this is not in place. The SOPs are all over the place. So you see how the different varying SOPs are in place because nobody knows. Right, So people always go, you know what, I'm going to do what I think is right. And this is where you will have a domino effect and a cascading effects. Because once people start to make rational scientific decisions on their own, you will have a big problem because now people start to interpret. They will have their own penterjemahan sendiri of what the SOP is. And they feel that, I think I'm safe, I'm going to allow 10 people in. I think I'm not safe, I'm not going to allow 2 people in. You know, so I think the color coding and zonings can be better explained by Dr. Helmi on how the plan is to actually color code areas. Uh, I would like to add in though, uh, on the flip side of what Dr. Farhan just said, uh, you see, uh, we talk about behavior change and willpower is actually an exhaustive resource. There's only so much rules you can make before you speed up willpower exhaustion, before you speed up pandemic fatigue, huh? So if, if we come up with all these uh, ever-changing SOP without, clear, without clarification, uh, actually, we're just going to exhaust your political capital. 
Hmm? You, you're going to speed up pandemic fatigue. There will be authority fatigue. People no longer believe in the authority. And you're going to fatigue the populace. Uh, it will lead to resentment. So, yes, we do need to take about, uh, we need to take it from the perspective about medical science. But when we talk about public health, it's not purely medicine. Public, it means you need to also understand the psychology of the populace. And therefore, what it means like, we should focus our willpower and we should focus our self-control to where it matters. And where it matters is basically telling people how fact such as COVID is a virus is different from a phenomenon like transmission. And when it comes to transmission, uh, it's ever-changing. Uh, and uh, we, 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 learn, we learn things as, as we go along. Uh, and at the moment, for example, we understand that there are hardly any cases uh, of transmissions uh, that actually take place in outdoor settings. Uh, in outdoor settings, so it, it means like you can, uh, if if you look at uh, what is happening in some states in the US now, uh, they even ask people to wear masks in, uh, to jog, and you know, like they even ask people like not to jog. Uh, at all uh, in the outdoor setting and this is this is absolutely ridiculous because there have been no scientific evidence to mount on that. Now, going back to what Dr. Farhan said, yes, it did to be made clarified uh, in such a way that it's discoverable. What does it mean by discoverable? It, it is that it, it must be something that you are already expected, right? So if you have a, if you have some system like the one that they have in Singapore, or the one that they have in New Zealand, right? So they have a set of they have a set of metrics. So they say like, okay, in an area, uh, in your in your in your area, if uh, it is a red zone, this is what need to be done, right? Okay, un- unfortunately, school have to be closed, uh, marketplace have to be closed, uh, order in and whatnot. Uh, and this is this stays true for every red area in the country. If it then goes to yellow. Then there are some other there are some other rules that can then be relaxed, right? So the only thing that can change is the color coding, not the set of the measures, because it's very difficult if today red means school closed, but tomorrow red means school open, right? Uh, so that is one thing. That is a set of measure. The other thing is about how do you then determine what is red and what is yellow, and that. You, you you just can't use absolute number because today we are talking about absolutism and there are no actually real use of absolute number in determining this thing because at the end of it, you have to look at the population density. You have to look at, again, in science, right? It's all about ratio. So you have to look about how many numbers in comparison to what are the denominator, uh, what are the number of the population in, in such a place, right? And that... I think how the SOP should better construct, should be better constructed, so that you don't face uh, you don't face a pandemic fatigue so soon. Okay, so Dr. Hamid, let's also touch on the use of data and technology, right? How do you think we can use that data that is being collected through the various contact tracing apps that we have, like MySejatra or Slanka, for example, to guide our SOPs? And you know, on, on and from there, what sort of data would uh, be needed? I will answer your last question first. What sort of data that need to be collected? Everything has been collected. In some instances, more than is needed. The problem uh, and the issue at the moment is not how how much data is being collected, but is how much that 
how much of those data are being analyzed and what are the method of analysis and have we drilled down on the data and have we optimized the use of the data uh, i will be clear the the the, the real use of all these uh, we call it point of interest yeah? the point of interest data kat mana you masuk kedai mana you masuk and what not right and it can only be useful jika if we are doing backward tracing and unfortunately in malaysia we don't do backward tracing enough so what does it mean backward tracing uh, backward tracing means like okay today i am sick and then usually when we do contact tracing it means like if i am sick then you know you have to ask me or you look into the system who else that i met right and that is what we call forward tracing i want to see like who help me have infected backward tracing means like going back retrospectively and understand how did helmi got infected and this is very important and uh, how you can use data is like uh, first thing first we need to understand uh, uh, the first fact that covid more likely to be transmitted in indoor setting oh but that is a very 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 general statement so what does it mean indoor setting a mosque is an indoor setting a restaurant is an indoor setting kindergarten is indoor setting and this is where actually the power of data and analytics can further be used uh, i would appeal <laughs> i would appeal to, to those who are holding a bigger data set who have like a wider data set as opposed to uh, what is being disposed uh, for my use uh, to actually pair up pair up all of the disease, all of the infection cases that you have found do someone backward tracing and then we can understand i give you a certain example i have published three paper uh it's all in prepre but all these three papers show that at least in selangor because that's the data that i have at least in selangor we have identified when we talk about indoor setting there are 22 categories of premise which have a higher likelihood of transmission as compared to others let's talk about restaurant itself right so for example transmission in a closed air condition large restaurant the transmission is 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 quite high it's relatively higher than the one which is open space like our mama because there are no fresh ventilation in such a setting you don't even need to be 1 meter apart you can be 6 meter apart and transmission still took place this are the way how data can be further utilized to understand and this is more important in in the in the in the yellow zone or in the green zone right because everyone was talking like how to open up the economy safely this is how you open it safely okay you want to open fnb but fnb their premises are arranged differently and it is by using this that we understand what type of restaurant is safe to be open now and what type of restaurant that is safe to be open later after they put in some measure in place i think the question goes back like whether it is even be analyzed in such a way like i think oh. it's about time like we ask uh, what so, the, the transmission risk a uh, per premise category i think somebody needs to start asking this hard question what are you doing with the data and how is the data that we are feeding through that we are scanning through the qr codes what are you doing with it to actually manage the pandemic how is this data actually being mined for you to develop sops and if you are doing this based on data should your sop be flimsy and changed right you need to back up your sop data your sop your sop uh, rollout with hard evidence data and you need to show us the link 
right? If you say that there is no transmissions in open spaces, show us the data that there are no open transmissions by using the QR codes that everybody has uh, scanned through. Because for me, what is important for me is that I think people should know what we are, what is being done and how they do it. We need to be transparent. The people basically scan the QR code because they do not want to get fined 1,000 ringgit. But the bigger question we should ask is this. Once the data is given, where does it go? And what do you do with the data? And how does it actually help in your pandemic management response? And from there, how then can we use our available apps to better communicate risks to the people? I will make a big disclaimer here that I am here uh, not to compare apps, obviously. Uh, I'm not here to compare apps. Uh, I know uh, I know, I do have some uh, some hand in the development of the other, but again, uh, I, I like I like I like to I like to bring us back about how the data is being used. Like when you were asking me just now, like whether those data can be further analyzed to get our SOP. In this case, we do in this case those data set can be analyzed anonymously so um, when when you talk about how those data can be uh, analyzed uh, it doesn't really need any personally identifiable uh, variable right and your question can we then use the app to better inform people yes of course and in some states and in some country uh, this has been done before let's say that we understand right uh, that a certain type of restaurant have a higher chance uh, of uh, transmission to take place inside it. And this is what you should communicate to people. The first principle of design or app design is discoverability. So I'm just thinking out loud now. What you can have is like, if you have an app and if you scan the QR code to enter into a premise, then the feedback, the feedback information, it should be told that, hi, you are in a yellow zone. And, you know, based on our risk analysis, these premises, if you are in these premises, uh, these are the number uh, or, or these are the likelihood of transmission that might take place in here. But it doesn't mean that the shop need to be closed. It, it, it serves as a way to tell people like in this area, what you might want to do is like you probably might want to get in, put in your face mask, make sure you sanitize your hand, grab what you need, and then you go out. And this is very true in a place like wet market, right? And this is a better constant reminder because uh, the SOP that have been formulated is there, is terpampang di muka anda apabila you scan the QR code. Yeah, people don't have to recall macam alamak, semalam, semalam sidang ahbah cakap apa ya. Yeah. So <laughs> these are simple steps that can be taken to further enhance the SOP, especially when we are in a phase where our knowledge about how transmission takes place evolve almost every day. So going back to the idea of COVID absolutism, because what we know about the pandemic changes so quickly, changes um, so much as well. Do you think we can find that balance between um, absolutist SOPs, but also, uh, you know, be flexible? Correct. Because I think you need guiding principles, right? You need basic evidence-based data to drive your main drivers or your pillars. So perhaps when we talk about how many people can cycle, how many people cannot. So cycling itself, you can cycle. But if you're in the red zone, perhaps uh, two. And if you are in a yellow or green zone, five or more, you know. So that can be changed according to the numbers. But the basic principles, can you cycle outdoors? Yes, because why? The risk of transmission is very low. So the basic principles remain the same. The only variable flexibility changes according to the zones. And this is also something that we can standardize on. 
can you go to the beach in the red zone? Yes or no? Right? So we have to decide. If it's yes, how is it different in the red zone, in the yellow zone, and in the green zone? So we have to come up with something that is holistic, that gives a balance between flexibility and also absolutism, right? And the best way for you to do this is to be able to deliver. Because if I was to ask you, is your office in the red zone? You wouldn't know. What about the building next to you? What about the district next to you, right? Because you are not able to get access to this constantly. And getting back to Dr. Helmi's point, this is where the app integration and digitalization of public health helps. So when you scan into KLCC Mall, for example, you will know, oh, this is a red zone. That means I am not able to eat more than two people in the table. I am not able to stay. And you will prime yourself to go, I'm going to go in, I'm going to go out. But if you're in your yellow zone, you know, pop, it says you are in a yellow zone area and you know exactly what are the activities that are allowed in that area. So this is where we have to find a bridge between all these three areas and you have to bring it together. And only then will you have effective public health risk communication that a lot of people will be able to understand. I will jump from that when we talk about this guiding principle then. So there are very beautifully worded guiding principle that is being used out there and makes people easy to understand. Uh, I have found two. So the first guiding principle, they were saying that don't breathe the air that other people breathe. If you drill this down to the people understanding that, it means like if I'm in a shop, it just means that I don't need to be so close to other people so I don't breathe the air that they breathe. If I were to wear a face mask, then I don't breathe the air that the other people breathe, right? So that is one thing. And then the other thing, which I also found uh, quite alluring, is the fact that imagine how it transmits. It's like how as if you were smell tobacco smoke, you know, because how the smoke particle spread is exactly how particle of virus would spread and particle of virus actually spread even further, right? But this actually drill down a certain understanding to people like, like, am I too close to this person? Imagine if this, people is, uh, if this person is smoking a cigarette, can I smell it? If I can smell it, it means like I probably am too close. What are the other ways that I can reduce the smell of tobacco? If I were to wear a face mask, it means like, you know, I, I, I wouldn't smell it so much, right? These are good guiding principles. And when we talk about risk communication, the first thing is that like a simple communication so that people understand the principle of transmission. The second one, when you talk about SOP, when you want to put something uh, on the table, right? It's probably best if you say, if you start uh, your narrative with mesyuarat, Mesyuarat telah mengkaji semua bukti-bukti saintifik dan then you go on rather than what is being practiced now because what is being practiced now usually you open the conversation with mesyuarat telah bersetuju untuk blah 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 and then people people will start asking like what are you agreed upon on or based on what consensus who agreed right and things like this and these are these are simple steps that can be taken now you know, it doesn't need any development, you know, uh, and to see like how the message will actually change people's perception. Mm, and this is specifically what uh, Prof. Farhan was saying just now, it's risk communication and it's also a science communication. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Farhan and Dr. Helmi. That was Assistant Professor Dr. Farhan Rusli, a public health physician and director of the Selangor Task Force for COVID-19, as well as Dr. Helmi Zakaria, who is also a member of the Selangor Task Force. And they were both sharing their thoughts on this uh, idea of COVID absolutism, right? And how our SOPs actually have to be based on guiding principles rather than absolute principles mm-hmm. so that people actually understand the rationale behind those decisions and people are thus able to follow 
them accordingly and make their own decisions on what they feel is safe for them or not. And, you know, they also highlighted the importance of good risk communication and most importantly, transparency in these decisions so that you are building trust between the rakyat and the authorities. Mm. And on that note, we have John who WhatsApped in to say that the SOPs keep changing mm. and that he finds the MKN website and that's the National Security Council, right? And uh, the National Security Council website um, to not contain the up-to-date information that he needs. So, you know, it, it's just um, adding on and it's compounding the problems that people have when it comes to, you know, even if they want to follow the SOPs, mm. they can't find the information. <laughs> they don't know what's the latest uh, 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 restriction that they're supposed to follow. We've also been asking you on Twitter, how have you kept yourself safe during this pandemic? What has been guiding your decisions? Um, 70% of you say you've been using common sense. So that's good to know. I hope that you understand and that you found it easy to understand um, the scientific or the health rationale for the decisions that you're making. Uh, almost 25% of you say that you've been following the SOPs strictly and uh, 5% of you say you're struggling to follow the SOPs. Um, we have a comment from Pish who um, actually it's it's a GIF uh, <laughs> meme. I, I'm not sure what these it's things... A it's a GIF, thank you, of... Um, Homer Simpson, uh, that gif of him disappearing into the bush and Pish says hiding in the jungle. <laughs> I think that's the, the, the safe way to be away from all this that COVID-19 might, pandemic. That might be the safest place for you right now. <laughs> that's right. Um, that's all the time we have for today's show. You can continue to share your thoughts with us uh, by tweeting us at BFM Radio, WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. Share any other uh, gifs you want to share that's with us right. about how you've been feeling um, following all these SOPs. You can also also get in touch with us directly on Facebook. Just look for BFM The Bigger Picture and drop us a message there. If you've missed any part of today's show, you can download the podcast on our website, bfm.my slash daily digest, on our BFM app and other places where you get your podcasts from. Now coming up at 3pm on Live and Learn, Dashran Johan and Hezro Ashraf will be discussing Lanka Sheraton in the eyes of youth leaders and they will be joined by Datuk Dr. Ashraf Wajdi Dusuki, who is the AMNO Youth Chief as well as YB Howard Lee, the Para Assembly Person for Pasipinji and DAP Youth Chief. So stay tuned for that conversation after the news bulletin at 3. Yes, and at 4pm on Health and Living, um, I will be speaking to Azro Muhammad Khalib, uh, CEO of the Galen Centre for Health and Social Policy, as well as uh, YB Dr. Kelvin Yee. He's the MP for Banda Kuching and also the Chairperson for the Parliamentary Select Committee on Health Science and Innovation. Um, and also on the note of, uh, you know, looking at the one-year anniversary of Lanka Sheraton, we'll be discussing how the Perikata National Administration has been handling the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, you know, from a public health perspective. Uh, how have we fared under their leadership and what should 2021 um, look like under their leadership? So that's our programming for this afternoon. Stay tuned for that. This has been the Daily Digest on The Bigger Picture, PFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.